Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. We want to start each podcast by restating the three principles we find quite important uh, to this whole enterprise. Not just quite important, but most important. And those things are what, Scott? Well, there's the first principle is that sacred cows make great barbecue. And what we mean by that is we will scoff at orthodoxy whenever we feel like it, right? Uh, number two, let your flag fly pr- proudly. There's a lot of L's and R's in that. <laughs> we'll argue vigorously for our point of view. Um, we don't mind yelling at one another. Because of number three, which is? Bros before politicos. Bros before politicos. That's right. What does that mean? Brothers first, and then we start figuring things out. And it really matters um, that we have a lot more connection beyond how we feel about the state. And that guy just more than anything else. And we are going to talk today about the question where we left off last week concerning to what degree should Christians be invested members of the state? It's a hard question to articulate, and I think that's one of the reasons we talk about it so much in our private lives. Right. Well, the, there's a, um, as we mentioned last time, there's kind of a baked-in assumption in America, let's say in American Christianity, that of course Christians should be a part of the state in um, fundamental ways. And you and I are interested in having conversations where we ask, A, is that true? Should we be a part of the state? And then B, if so, in what ways? Right. I mean, there is the um, kind of the American monastic um, Mennonite cultures, right? There are, there are groups of Christians who have said, we are not going to be a part of this. But they are rare when we think about American Christianity historically. And so um, if they are rare, why are they, why are they rare? And what are the basic assumptions that some of us are having when we engage in public, in, in the public square? Well, I think we should start today by, I want to I articulate two vignettes that have puzzled me in my adult life that got me thinking along these ways. One of them is the story of when the apostles of Jesus come to him and say, hey, we're confused. Do we actually owe taxes to the Roman government, or don't Mm -hmm. we? Mm -hmm. Because we're here, uh, we are here at their leisure, but they are doing things with their money that we may or may not like, Mm -hmm. and they are trying to exact a tax from us. Do we, in fact, owe them a tax? To me, that's, that's a remarkably uh, prescient question for someone who is concerned about our role in the government. It's, in fact, I remember when I was very young and first reading the Bible, I was confused that that was actually a conversation that happened a long time ago because it sounds like a question I'm asking or my family is asking and that we're talking about with our friends is to what degree do we owe taxes uh, to the government, which does not represent our faith? Well, and, you know, when you and I were coming up, I think we heard some of the same explanations, which was, oh, well, there were people who thought that the kingdom, 
that that Jesus's kingdom was going to overthrow the other rule that was going to replace Roman rule. And so that might be a justifiable reason for them to ask the question. But uh, we haven't necessarily, at least as you and I were coming up, we haven't treated that as um, something that might be uh, a prescient question for now, right? It seems to have been contextualized by some histori- <laughs> some historically. Right, right. And so as an adult who um, is not happy at all with how the government spends its money, spends my money, spends your money, um, when reading that verse has new significance to me. And so that story uh, has Jesus answering in a way that is both a little bit confusing and mm-hmm. a little bit uh, heavy-handed almost to me. Is when he's, He literally says, take out the coin and look and see whose picture's on it, and that's, what, that's who you know who to give it to. Um, since it's Caesar, give that to him because apparently that's his money but make sure you give to God what is God's. Now, that's a confusing answer when you're in junior high in Bible school trying to figure <laughs> out, you know, what your Sunday school teacher is saying. But I've thought about that a lot, and I've come to the conclusion that the biggest— there are probably several messages in that, but the message to me has always been, or has lately been, you know, there is the realm of humankind and human state government, and they they have things they're going to take and things that they're going to claim ownership to, and they're going to come and take them from time to time. And that is not your primary concern. Your mm-hmm. primary concern mm-hmm. is your devotion to the kingdom. And you need to make sure you get that done, no matter what the state is doing. No, I'm with you. So there are the interpretations where Jesus, there, there are some interpretations where folks say, look, what Jesus is saying is pay taxes. Right, that he is affirming that it is our responsibility to pay taxes and to be a part of the, an active part and a, and a, a willing comp, a compliant part yeah. of the yeah. of the society. I, I really think I'm I'm with you. I really think there's something deeper going on here, which is that Jesus is saying, in essence, who cares? Who cares really about something so base? We have bigger we have bigger fish to fry, and so yeah, pay your taxes because we have bigger work. Yes, it's almost um, just one more instance of Jesus saying, you're asking the wrong question. Right. Yeah. Which he seems to be saying a lot. (laughs) Yes, perhaps that should be the subtitle of the New Testament, you're asking the wrong question. So that's the the first vignette, is Jesus' response to his apostles who are saying, should we pay taxes? The second vignette is something that actually happened to me in the summer of 2007, I was in Oxford, England for an academic purpose, uh, enjoying my time there, and I attend uh, an Anglican church when I go. It's um, quite a worshipful experience, one that I enjoy quite a bit. And that particular summer uh, saw a lot of flooding. It rained more than usual. The Thames was overflowing its banks. The lovely Port Meadow in Oxfordshire was was had so much water that the horses who lived there were all clumped up you know they were making friends with each other they didn't know they had and <laughs> you you could scarcely you couldn't really even walk through port meadow anymore the bridges were covered with water it was really something and so one sunday as i was there the rector stood up when it was time to give the the sermon and asked the following question could the flooding that we're experiencing be the result of England's having turned away from God? 
And I sat in the congregation and thought, okay, I am not comfortable at all with this line of questioning. I was, I was confused and put off by it. And he, he followed that up with some specifics, such as could, our, could, could the United Kingdom's collective emphasis on ungodly political policies be awakening God's wrath such that the floods were meant to capture our attention and to send us a different way. And really that was the line of his sermon that day, using words like parliament and Mm -hmm. the House of Lords and Commons. And it was a mixture of state apparatuses and scripture to have his congregation wonder if the actions we were seeing, uh, water overflowing the Thames, could have been God's response to bad policy making. Mm. And so as I sat and tried to drink that in and thought, how can this be happening in church? It suddenly occurred to me, I am in fact sitting in the Church of England, in a congregation of the Church of England. In the United States, I don't want to be naive and say that nothing political is ever said, but no one talks about what the House and Senate are doing and what legislation is coming up very often because it's part of the law code that you really can't mix that very overtly. And so I wasn't accustomed to hearing that. Or if, it, if you do hear it here in the States, then, it, then there are a number of us who say, what a shame, right? What a shame that you would do that. But in this case, it makes a lot of sense yes. because it's the state church. It is the Church of England. It is the state church. And the ease with which yeah. these things were intertwined caught my attention more than the sermon did. And I have to admit, as a person who is trying very hard in his life to to separate the church and state and my duty to the kingdom of heaven versus the duty, whatever duty I have to the state government, it was uncomfortable for me. And it, it was a revelation of, of course, I'm in a country where the state and the church are uh, ostensibly one thing. So given given what I see as Jesus' direct answer of that's over there and this is over here, and your attention should not be uh, distracted by that over there, your attention should be here, versus my sitting in the Church of England mm-hmm. hearing it completely combined, my question then became, how did this ever happen? Right. How did it ever happen that the church and the state became such power alliances. So talk about that, if you will. Well, I, I think, you know, we, we would first want to note that for the first several centuries of the, of the church's existence, they are separate, not because the church wished them to be, but because the church was oppressed, right? So at the time that Jesus, uh, Jesus walks on the earth, Israel itself is under subjugation. Um, and then even Christianity, which was originally understood as a subset of Israel, um, really exists within this subjugated, oppressed context. And that really defines Christianity, both at the time that Jesus walks on the earth and also for the, the, the next 250 years afterwards, right? So we're almost 300. So there's this, there's the... Um, a tradition of Christianity existing under oppression. And so the separation of church and state 
was not the church's choice. It was the state's choice. Does that make sense? Yes, all, yes, it does. It makes me think, though, about how often Jesus said, you will be oppressed. Right. You will be harmed. You will be... It seemed like he was preparing them for this reality. Well, it didn't take long. I mean, you've got, um, <laughs> you know, in 64, in AD 64 and following with Nero's um, persecution of Christians, um, which were, in that case, Christians were in a convenient scapegoat, apparently. But um, and, and then you have Domitian's kind of neo-Orthodoxy and worship of Jupiter by 85, there is a really overt, strong effort to quash um, insurrectionist religions like Christianity. And then um, and then even as late as 303 AD, you have Diocletian's edict against the Christians. So this, this is something that is constant for the first three centuries of the church, is that we're um, perpetually perpetually separate from the state. And being separate from the state had the same semantic qualities of persecution. It means the same thing. So you can understand why the Christians might at some point um, dream of a time when we weren't being oppressed, when we were able to participate in the state and not living under the the persecution. I want to say something about persecution before we go on. Okay. Which is that I am really, I want I want to be very careful to note that the persecution that Christians go through in the first three centuries is not the same as somebody who says, uh, the government is making me bake a cake for someone that I don't like. Okay. Right? We can, we can use that term persecution very broadly. We're talking people are dying, right? M- mass murder. We're talking um, about overt acts of intentional discrimination. So that term persecution is has sometimes been used so broadly that we might miss mistake the severity of what the persecution was for Christianity in the in the first 3 centuries. Do you think that's fair to make that note? Yes, I think you're trying to make sure we understand the semantic value of persecution as they felt it in the first three centuries and not be confused by what we're calling persecution sometimes now. Right. If somebody says something on Twitter about (laughs) my faith, that really doesn't feel like the same level um, historically. Got it. Right. Got it. So you can imagine why Christians, uh, especially as we're moving into uh, the fourth century, Christians are really anxious and eager to um, to be liberated from that kind of persecution, and why they might be interested in having some relationship with the state, because that means protection, that means permission, that means a, a kind of uh, acceptance and rights that also means no persecution. Yeah. And that's kind of the context in which we end up with Constantine the First. Um, Constantine's mother was a Christian. Uh, his, um, his father was a very capable politician. And so you've got this combination um, of a, a kind of a family history of both Christianity and politics that kind of manifest themselves ultimately in the man of Constantine, where he's... Um, uh, and he becomes when he becomes emperor, he is he is a great emperor. And so um, Constantine's big ascension to his imperial reign is um, it happens on in three twelve. 
It happens at the Battle of the Million Bridge, right, where um, this is called the Ascension Battle. This is the place where Constantine uh, moves into Rome. He becomes the emperor. And yet, um, as Eusebius describes this event, it's hard to know whether this was uh, something that happened in real time or whether this was some apocrypha that got attached to it. But as Constantine is beginning that battle, he looks up into this into the sky, and he sees a cross, and he hears the voice of Christ saying, by this ye shall win, right? Uh, And so that's kind of where you end up with this idea that Constantine is going to win by Christianity or by Christ. He's going to become the emperor. And so Constantine claims this was the impetus of his imperial reign. If we're going to think about Constantine as Um, as an emperor, I think we have to first understand that his early inclination, the, the, the real effort of Constantine's reign was to make Christianity permissible. The Edict of Milan in 313 does not say that Christianity is now the imperial religion. What it says is it was proper for that Christians and all others should have the liberty to follow that mode of religion, which each of them, to each of them appeared best, according to Eusebius, right? This is the idea that if you are a Christian, that should be fine. If you want to worship Jupiter, that should also be fine. Whatever one sees best, including Christianity, should be permissible. So it might be stated like this, Congress shall make no law. With respect to religion. <laughs> it's very I mean, it's very it sounds similar. like that. Okay. Edict yeah. of Milan and First Amendment. Go ahead. Well, so, <laughs> you know, that's 313. We don't actually have um, Christianity as the imperial religion of Rome until 380 with uh, the Edict of Thessaloniki. It's not until Theodosius in 380 that we actually have Christianity as the required religion. But the Edict of Milan is the... Uh, Christianity is permissible. So how did it move so quickly from permissible to required? Well, that's the that's the I think the important question. What changes about Christianity? It could be that there's a rubber band effect going on, right? That we've been oppressed, we've been oppressed and then all of a sudden we're um we're in like Flynn. Um it appears clear that within short order Christianity fills in um and takes on the structure of Roman Imperium. The vicar already exists in Roman government, now becomes the role of uh, where, where Christians occupy the role. And so it, it is not, uh, the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 is not revolutionary. It is basically stating what is the case that Christianity has become oh, really? the okay. religion of Rome. And that's not the end of the story. There are uh, f- there are moves back and forth from there in the future, but it's the first place where we have Christianity is the required religion. But I do think that you're asking the important question. Between 313 and 380, something happens to where it is not per- just permissible that Christianity, uh, that folks are allowed to be Christians. It is now required within the course of In the course of 67 years, you end up with this requirement. And when you read Eusebius, Eusebius is, he revels in what Constantine was able to do, to bring Christians to the the table, to bring Christians to participants in power. And I think it's fair to ask, was that good for Christianity? 
I think it's fair to ask. I'm not going to make a claim yet, but our growth was stunted during that period. The, the, well, let me go ahead and make the argument. I think that there are a lot of places even then where we uh, sell our birthright for a bowl of red soup. We find these ways in which we might um, give over some of our virtue for the sake of power, and that this becomes kind of a, a tradition for us. You're reminding me of some things we've talked about in our in our past about the church's time of largest expansion was during the time when they were taking care of people when it was illegal for them, or at least dangerous for them, to wear their Christianity out loud. There are a lot of instances of heresy and folks doing terrible things with Christianity, but there are a lot of wonderful things happening. Um, so, for example, um, you know, we have a uh, during that period, we have this whole emerging idea of hospitality and hospice, um, where if you were sick, Christians kind of didn't care what happened to them because they figured they were going to heaven if they got sick, so they didn't mind helping the sick, Hmm. right? So if you were a person who had been sick and had been helped by a Christian, you might think that's pretty cool. Uh, There's evidence that during this period, for example, they didn't have abortion as a practice, but once you had a baby and you didn't want the baby, you just put it on the side of the road and whatever happens to it, happens to it. Well, Christians would pick those babies up and they'd bring them up in their homes and they'd tell them at a certain point in their lives, well, you know, I was loved by God and so I love you. And that can have a big effect. So the growth of Christianity during the first 300 years is exponentially greater than you see in any other period since, which I think is both compelling and very, very important um, uh, to reflect upon. I would want to stop one step short of saying that's because they were persecuted and so we should be persecuted, right? (laughs) Uh, But I think um, the condition of the church during that period um, was one that you had to be serious yeah. Right? It was no it was not cool to join. It was cool to do something else. And so that had some effect on the way we um we grew and we grew seriously. Even after the Edict of Milan, I mean, that's where you have the Desert Fathers popping up. That's where they start saying, you know, I when I was when we were under persecution, my faith was hard and it was hardened. And now it's easy, and I don't know what to do. Hmm. And that's where you have that first group moving out and getting away from culture, because culture seems to be doing something to my faith. So let's let's talk a little bit in some general terms about what happened after the second edict, the one of Thessaloniki, mm-hmm. when it became the imperial religion. What would happen to people who did not profess Christianity in, under that in that case. I'm smiling. I mean, guess what happens? They're persecuted. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, that's the thing is, it doesn't take long for a, um, an oppressed population to become the oppressors. This is Pablo Fier's argument. It does not take long for the oppressed to become the oppressor. Uh-huh. And in this case, um, it does not, it, it takes us 67 years to go from just um, per, 
permitted to be um, uh, people of faith. We get to the table, and um, we then start to take advantage of being at the table. It is at the it is at three eighty that we start to see um, more militant forms of evangelism. Okay, so I, I have a human nature question for you. Okay, the human nature question, and I realize you're not a psychologist, but I'm according to things you've read, I, it would I'm interested in your answer to this question. It seems to me there are three possibilities. As uh, in a human nature sense of how we went from you may now be a Christian and not fear persecution to uh, we are now the imperial religion where we are being militant about our faith. The first possibility is it is a reaction to the persecution we were experiencing and we are just pushing the pendulum as far as we can to now enjoy the power we didn't have. Uh, or number two, we are humans who cannot resist the corruption that power gives us. And by power, I just mean the power to sit at the table was, was more than we could bear as soon as we found ways to grab more power we did. Or C, we somehow believed that if we had power, we could m- serve Christ better. Now, that is... I don't want to be naive, but I want to I want to say perhaps there was a a motivation that was not as um, nefarious as the first two. I think three would be the um, uh, the asserted mindset, and we think about the way that Christianity has played, or any religion has played within the public square. Um, you know, I I hear. I hear voices within Christianity today saying, well, you know, God blesses a holy nation. So if we're able to help the nation be holy, God will bless the nation. Right. right? This is this is textually driven, in fact, from other theocracies like Israel. Right, right. So um, I, I think that I think it would be totally fair um, to assert that the, that the third point you're making is, plays out a lot when it comes to human nature. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so if if Christians thought they were doing point three, which is the, the point three you're making is that power makes us do—we can do more good, but I think the reality is point two, that, that power corrupts, because you have to hold on to it. And it was so close in time, those two edicts were close in time— to where a generation before they Christians had been routinely oppressed, that it certainly was an attractive feature to be now the ones in charge. Yeah, I don't know how that co- how that collective bias builds. Yeah, I don't either. But but boy, it does, and it doesn't take generations. It can happen in one generation. I want to I want to come to a point that I, I you knew we were going to get to uh, sooner or later, which is. Reinhold Niebuhr's Moral Man in Moral Society. Your favorite book. Did you know that's what I was going to do? <laughs> Where his theory is that societies have the first, their first responsibility is self-preservation. That's the first. Self-preservation ends up being the primary motive of any organization or any group or any society. And that everything else is done in service to 
priority number one to the prime directive, that societies cannot choose to be moral. Only individuals can choose to be moral because societies have to preserve themselves. Individuals can choose not to preserve themselves, to sacrifice themselves, but a society can't make a decision to sacrifice itself. So <clears throat> the reason I think this becomes uh, important and, and the reason I think he is onto something here is that um, uh, Christianity up until um, Constantine and for sure by the time of Theodosius, it's not it's an individual thing. It's an individual pursuit. I participate in my faith, and you participate in your faith, and we share our faith together, and we struggle together. That there is a and and I frankly think that there is a lot of individualism in the New Testament. You know, it's not that. It, and if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us how to be good individuals, not how to build good societies. Right. Right. Well, when we've decided that we are no longer ourselves, but we are part of this organization or organism, its first responsibility is to make sure it keeps its seat at the table. So I think Niebuhr's uh, argument that societies themselves are incapable of, of being moral makes a lot of sense here. I think it's on display here. So he's not merely saying they are, they are unconcerned or mor- morality that they are morally neutral, but he's saying they are immoral societies. Moral man, immoral, not amoral, right. and not. If morality is ultimate for us as Christians, if morality is ultimately defined by agape, then yes, they can't. A society can't do self-sacrificing love. Okay. Right. Its prime directive is to exist. Now, what he's suggesting is, wouldn't it be nice if the church was the one organization that could do this? Yeah. Um, that because our we are if we're the body of Christ, the body of Christ is defined by though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. This kind of kenosis or self-sacrificing, pouring out oneself for the sake of others. If the church could be that, it could be the one organization that breaks the rule. But he's also writing that we're not. <laughs> right. We're following. We're, we've fallen into the same patterns. And especially if we are invested in high positions of government, that idea of self pouring out of power is not in our minds. If, especially if you think about it. I mean, this is true in any um, political structure or system. But in ours, the first responsibility of a congressman is what? Get to revote. Get reelected. Get reelected. Yeah. So, um, and until that is not the prime directive, that is the prime directive. And when it's not the prime directive, you're not getting revoted. You're not getting reelected. So it's the same thing for Christianity. As long as we're not at the table, then we're losing. Right. So is there anything else you want to say about this historical union before we start talking about contemporary applications of what I would call the, the confusion about how much we want to be church and state? I would say that I think it's important to, to note that much of the church's understand historically and ortho, in terms of orthodoxy, much of the church's understanding of Constantine and the Edict of Milan comes through Eusebius, who is a fanboy 
<laughs> of Constantine. Everything Constantine does, almost everything Constantine does, is wonderful and the best thing ever. I think a little bit of historiography is important when you think about how we think about the history, is what lenses are we looking through? And Eusebius, for better or for worse, Eusebius is not an objective observer of those events. I do think that there have been times where we have turned back to, um, to Roman Christianity and assumed that it was a good thing because Eusebius told us it was a good thing. Uh, and, uh, and it seems to me historically smarter to be able to ask, um, through what lens or what bias is Eusebius working, and are we comfortable with that bias? And our our history friends would be very glad we're asking that question. Our history professor friends, yeah, because that that's a question that can never be can never remain unasked. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now, where would you want to go? Yes, the reason that this question becomes very important in our discussion of being a Christian citizen is because in my lifetime and in your lifetime, and in the I would say much of the twentieth century, there have been there, there have been many instances where lawmakers have invoked explicit Christian principles as underlying warrants for policies they are writing. There have been times when non-Christian citizens and non-Christian policymakers have tried to eschew those things and say, this is not what we're about. And that has angered Christians in ways that have caused them to go and try to elect someone because of the Christian language he or she was speaking and promises to write policies when he or she got elected that would reflect biblical principles. And this has been confusing to me and angering me in some way. So let me give you a couple examples. I, I've, often, I've often grown up hearing my um, family and friends say, well, we want to vote for this best candidate because he goes to church regularly or goes to this this church a lot and look what his church members say about him and look what he has said about his views on this item that we agree with because we are Christians. And as a burgeoning libertarian, I would always think, wait a minute, we're not trying to put Christian processes into law. And sometimes, that, uh, sometimes we may be pleased, but I would say that that is coincidental or incidental to the policies. I once, I remember listening to Barack Obama talk about his Affordable Health Care Act legislation, where he said in a moment of persuasion, we must be our brother's keeper. And listening to that, I thought, that is a biblical injunction. I am, as a member of God's kingdom, to be concerned with my brothers and sisters and my neighbors, but I'm not, that doesn't enter into a state-sponsored health care policy decision the way that Obama is encouraging me to think about it. I am troubled uh, at times by the prayer breakfast <laughs> mm -hmm. that they have each year. Uh, when, I, when I hear of things that have gone on, of course I have no problem with prayer, and I understand that when it says Congress shall make no law, that's what it means, that we shouldn't have a law against a prayer breakfast. That's not what I'm saying. But the way that that is so carefully wrapped up in pol political discussions and policy 
discussions is sometimes disturbing to me. So no matter the party involved, I see biblical injunctions brought up as warrants. And the final one I will say is I hear some of my Christian brothers and sisters saying uh, the reason we should feel this way or that way about immigration policy is because of the verses that talk about being kind to the stranger at the gate. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a theocratic law involved with Israel's existence, not the United States of America in 2018. So. To me, I see those things being seamlessly integrated in ways that I don't think they should be. What do you What do you think of that? Do you think those are fair examples of where, where the combination of church and state have led us? Where the combination of church and state has led us? Um, okay, so it seems to me that there are two things playing out here. One is the question of rhetoric and persuasion, and the other is the question of policy. Okay. So... I think you and I would agree that, and this is where we're going to kind of have to, I think we've already laid this out, but you and I both agree that it's probably not in the best interest. Uh, For one reason or another, it's not great to have Christianity at the table of power. Yes. Right. Um, If Christianity is used as a rhetorical tool to persuade Christians, that bothers me. As a Christian, when you use my faith as means to persuade to policy, that frustrates me immensely because you've bastardized my faith. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's different than saying the Bible says no divorce so nobody gets a divorce. That's different than saying the Bible says X, Y, or Z, and so we now, therefore, are going to have a policy. That's different than saying, um, I want a statue of the Ten Commandments on, a, on the front lawn of our courthouse because the, the Lord gave us the Ten Commandments. So there are, two way, there are two ways in which this is playing out. One is the question of persuasion, which I find very distasteful and bastardizes my faith. And the other is a question of policy, where we take some interpretation of what the oughts of Scripture, and we, and we enforce those oughts on other people, which to me is a violation of the state. Right? So um, th- this question of church and state and whether, whether, the, whether the church and state belong together, to me... The reason they don't belong together is that it is abusive to the church. It's abusive to the principles and the, and the virtues that underpin my faith to boil them down into some argument that really was just a point to persuade me to a policy. Right. And in instances where we enforce our, our own set of values on other people, violates the principle of the state and particularly in our and from our point of view violates the principle of liberty you're speaking very much like a libertarian yeah that's a sad thing to say <laughs> i mean you you are identifying one of the main tenets of a classical liberal at this point and those of people who've listened know that you don't you don't share that camp very much maybe this much but not much more 
but I think it's because of how you then feel about the, st- the proper role of the state later on. Right. right. Oh, no. So I'm cool with, with taxing the heck out of you. Right. Uh, yes. Right? I just don't say Jesus made us do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Right. Or nor am, nor am I going to find some proof text somewhere that says, oh, coal should not pay taxes, and thus saith the Lord here in Isaiah. Right? That's not cool either. Well, and another thing that you're not going to do, which a lot of people have said to me over the years, is how can you be a Christian and not vote for state-sponsored X, whether it's health care, food stamps, whatever. How can that comport with your Christian faith? Don't you care about sick people? Don't you care about hungry people? Why are you against this law? And to me, those, are, those do not necessarily go together at all. And you never do that hmm. in, because I think you, we overlap at least the, the amount we're talking now about how the state and the church are not the same. It's so interesting that you you are uh, very aware of instances where liberal arguments are made through uh, arguments of faith. It's interesting that you hear those because that's not what I hear. I hear conservative arguments being made with the articles of faith. <laughs> but it's right. always so one example is um, when I worked for a church in Dallas one of the other ministers there said, I don't know how you can be a Christian and vote Democrat. And my gut reaction to that statement was, I don't know how you can be a Christian and say that out loud. Being a Christian is not, if it is about how you vote, I'm out. Right. (laughs) Right. I want to be with Jesus. That's what my Christianity is. I want to be with Jesus, and sometimes that is a factor in the way I think about how I'm going to be, how I'm going to act in the voting booth, and I'm very comfortable with that. But I don't think it's fair to say, "And therefore, thus saith the Lord." Right. If if my Christianity, if in my faith I deliberate and I say, you know what, it seems the best thing to do here is for me to punch the ticket for Barack Obama, which I did, and that's what that was my mindset. I can't turn around to my brother then and say, Cole, you are not a Christian because you didn't come to the same conclusion. That is not fair. We can argue about whether I made a good choice or a not good choice, but I don't get to say, or you can argue, but we don't get to say, well, you're a Christian, so why did you do this? And boy, let me tell you something. Uh... I know that's easy to talk about who you punch a ticket for. It's harder when you start talking about some deeper issues that do feel very difficult for Christians. Because I do pull the lever from time to time for people who believe that abortion should be legal. And I don't believe that abortion is a good thing. I don't know how to deal with it, but I, I, it's not good. It's not right. And so I don't know what to do with that. But that's a all of us. Either we're being dishonest or we are literally in a quandary every time we pull a lever, every time we choose a representative. We are always in a quandary. And I think the, the first thing we have to stop doing is saying, oh, you must not be a serious Christian uh, because you supported person X or policy Y. Right, right. Um. How is what I'm saying different from libertarianism 
because you said it sounds very similar to libertarianism. Well, the things that you're saying regarding how decisions that you make about how the state enacts policy uh, are only part of the decisions that you make from time to time as a Christian, rather than wrapped up hierarchically as your life as a Christian sounds libertarian. In other words, I'm when I wake up each day, my I have certain goals and certain directives that I feel I need to follow as a Christian, such as love my neighbor, mm -hmm. uh, such as caring for people, whether it's emotionally or, you know, if someone's hungry, etc. And even if it just means being kind to the people I work with, those are directives that do not depend on who is in office. Those are things of a day, and I have weekly and yearly goals that pertain to how I work with my church and how I work in the, in the community, those things to some degree are not affected by who is in office. So the people I vote for and the policies I vote for as a libertarian are basically to reduce the static as much as possible. People who get elected in the United States and in any country in the world are people who are fallible, and who will disappoint me. And even if I was able to find the greatest Christian in the United States to point to and say, look, she's the best Christian in the United States, let's make her president, then I would still be disappointed because she is a fallible human being. And I cannot allow my Christian walk to depend on who is in office. My Christian walk has to happen every day, no matter what. And I think that is what you're saying, too, is it only, is, it only matters so much who we can vote for and how, what policies are put in place at the state level. That cannot be my Christian walk. The state doesn't make me a Christian. Correct. The state does not make me, we do not live, this is the thing, is we do not live in a Christian nation. Right. Either I am a Christian or I'm not. Right. And I th the thing I really love about what you just said is you keep using words like walk or do, verbs. Christianity is a verb. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may glorify God on the day of his visitation. It's doing good, living good. It's about being uh, people who act in ways that are driven by the agape of God. It's not about sitting on my couch, right, comfortable that whomever is uh, initiating policy is somehow fixing fixing a, a Christian culture. If it's not about me getting up off my couch and doing something, then it's not about me. Right. That's right. So I'm with you a thousand percent, and I really appreciate when, when folks like you describe their faith in terms of the things I do, the things in the ways I walk or the ways that I move or the choices I make. Um, so... I think the question for next time, we've kind of we've kind of suggested that there's a problem. Right? I suggested it loudly. <laughs> yes. So um, let's talk about the question next time, should we even vote? Okay. Right? So we're saying at some point we feel like there needs to be a separation, that the church has involved itself and put itself in a place of power in in ways that we find 
violate the point of Christianity. So how far should we go here? Should I vote? I guess Jesus told me to pay taxes, but he didn't tell me to vote. So do we try to separate ourselves completely and find some culture where we are not asked to be the state or to make create our own state? How do we do this? Even, and, and that is helped along, that question is, by the way that Jesus told me to pay taxes, which is almost to dismissively say, that's over there and this is over there. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I like that idea. Sounds good. 